This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Tonight I'd like to conclude this long series of talks on the Mahasatipatthana Sutta with a discussion of the last three steps of the Eightfold Path, that is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Together these three steps are called the Samadhi section, or the concentration division of the path. And although it is the wisdom factor, which is panya in Pali, which actually has the function of cutting through ignorance and cutting through delusion, wisdom is supported by these three factors of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. They are the support for that sharp blade of wisdom to awaken the enlightenment factors within us. So it's important that we understand right effort, the sixth step on the path, in the context of awakening. The mental factor which underlies effort, and right effort in particular, is virya, or energy, which is one of the factors of enlightenment. But as we all know, energy can be used in many different ways can have many different goals, both wholesome and unwholesome. And even when we use energy in the service of what is wholesome, is it for the accumulation of merit? Is it for the accumulation of worldly happiness? Or is the energy used in the association with the wholesome, in the service of the wholesome, associated with the right view that actually liberates the mind. So we have to understand right effort as a path factor in a very particular way, associated with right view, associated with wisdom. So the Buddha spoke of this right effort as the application of energy in four endeavors. 
And the first of these is preventing the arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. The preventing of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. So just this endeavor points to a very fundamental way in which our minds work. In the discourses of the Buddha, the most pragmatic description of Nibbana, of the unconditioned, is the mind that is free from greed, free from hatred, and free from delusion. So that's the most understandable description of Nibbana, the awakened state, free from greed, free from hatred, free from delusion. We've all experienced many wholesome mind moments, you know, when the defilements are not present. Yet even though we've experienced these wholesome moments many times, we've also experienced the re-arising of the defilements in later moments when the conditions change. So this re-arising of the defilements happens because of something which is called, which are called the latent defilements. That is, mind mind states that are not present in the moment, but have the potential to arise when the conditions are appropriate for their arising. So when we understand the working of the latent defilements, that we carry this as kind of an underground stream in the stream of consciousness, it can inspire in us a certain quality, a certain wholesome quality of spiritual urgency. It's easy to become complacent somewhat about our present circumstances because we're probably, for the most part, leading good and wholesome lives. But even under these favorable conditions, it's not hard to see the many moments when greed arises, when anger or aversion arises, when delusion arises, We see something beautiful and attractive, and we want it. Our minds are pulled towards it. Or perhaps we see somebody doing something we don't like, and there's an immediate arising of judgment or irritation or annoyance. Or maybe we're tired and the mind simply dulls out. So this is the force of the latent defilements arising again when the conditions are right for them to arise. So the first of the four great endeavors that the Buddha spoke of as part of right effort is recognizing the enduring power of these latent defilements, understanding what gives rise to them in our experience, and making the effort to prevent them from arising and taking hold. In the Tibetan tradition, one of the most um, powerful meditations is something they called they call the four mind-changing reflections. 
And the first of these, the first of these reflections is contemplating the preciousness of our human birth. And it's precious because right now, as a human being, we have the opportunity to look at, to understand, to weaken, and to finally uproot these latent defilements which are in the mind. That's the opportunity provided us. So how do we practice this first aspect of right effort? You know, the previous steps on the path, right speech, action, and livelihood, they provide the foundation. Because those steps are abstinence from unwholesome activities. Right? We abstain from the unwholesome activities of body and speech. So that's the foundation. But we need to go a little further in terms of preventing the unwholesome states from arising in our minds. And so here we need to exercise wise attention with respect to the different objects of experience which arise. You know, objects of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, of sensation in the body, and of thoughts. As you've experienced, when our attention is casual, when it's careless, when it's unwise, then we simply easily fall back into old habit patterns of reactivity. For me, one of the most radical and challenging statements of the Buddha, which in some way puts our whole practice into a powerful context, is when he said, as long as there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. So that's a very stark statement about our path of practice. Can we pay such wise attention to arising experiences so that when it's pleasant, we're simply mindful of it and we're not driven by greed? When it's unpleasant, can we be mindful of the unpleasantness and not driven by aversion? This takes a very careful attention, you know, moment to moment. So that's the first of the great endeavors, preventing unarisen wholesome states from arising, unwholesome states. So the second great endeavor is to abandon the unwholesome states which have already arisen. So we've talked a lot about this in reference to working with the different hindrances. And mindfulness of them is always the first strategy. If we're not even aware that the hindrance is present, there's not much possibility of abandoning them. So the first step and the first strategy is always mindfulness. And sometimes that moment of mindfulness is enough. We see the unwholesome state arise, the hindrance arise, and as the Tibetan teachings say, in that moment of clear seeing, 
they self-liberate. I really like that phrase, it just self-liberates. It arises and disappears just through the power of awareness. So this is a teaching from Kensei Rinpoche, one of the great Dzogchen masters. He said, at present, the natural clarity of your mind is obscured by delusion. But as the obscuration clears, you will begin to uncover the radiance of awareness. Until you reach a point where just as a line traced on water disappears the moment it is made, your thoughts are liberated the moment they arise. And you've probably had that experience when the awareness is strong, when the mindfulness is strong, We see a thought arise, we see a hindrance arise, and in the very moment of seeing it and being aware, it's gone, like the line traced in water. At other times, though, the hindrances may be quite tenacious, and we need additional strategies for abandoning them. In one sutta, the Buddha described five techniques, five methods, for dispelling, distracting, or unwholesome thoughts and mind states. So the first of them is using its opposite as an antidote. So, for example, if ill will has arisen, arising, we can practice metta, loving-kindness, refocusing the mind on that wholesome state. Or if restlessness is present, we could refocus the mind on calming the mind and body through the breath. So we use the antidote. If envy or jealousy is present, we can redirect the mind towards mudita, towards sympathetic joy. It's understanding that we all have an inner remote, and it's possible to learn how to change the channel. When we see that an unwholesome state has arisen, this is one way of abandoning it. The second method the Buddha talked about in terms of removing or abandoning unwholesome states, distracting thoughts, is through the mental factors of what are called in Pali, hiri and otapa. And they're often translated as moral shame, and moral dread, and sometimes translated as self-respect or respect for the wise. And it really has to do with this, you could say, quality or aspect of conscience. You know, conscience and responsibility, taking responsibility for our mind states. And at different times when I found my mind caught you know, by some unskillful thought or desire. I've used these two factors of mind very uh, skillfully, very effectively. Just reflecting on how the wise might view these unwholesome states in the mind. What would the wise say about them? Not even the wise, necessarily. Sometimes I think, 
what would the IMS board of directors say? <laughs> it's amazing what a powerful unhooking happens <laughs> just when I contemplate in that way. They're really powerful allies, you know, Hiri and Otapa, in letting go of what is unwholesome. Care is needed, though, that we do this from a place of wise understanding and not simply letting it feed into feelings of self-judgment and guilt, which could easily happen. We can use Hiri and Otapa as a powerful force to awaken us from deluded thinking, from patterns of deluded thinking. It kind of startles us into wakefulness. So the first endeavor in, endeavor in abandoning unwholesome states is to use its opposite as an antidote. The second way is this cultivation of Hiri and Otapa, that sense of conscience, or reflecting on the wise. The third method the Buddha suggested is interesting and something we might not usually think of, and that is a deliberate diversion of attention. If we're really lost in the hindrances, we're lost in the quagmire of them, you know, and caught by them, we can deliberately divert our attention to some other object. And there has been some recent psychological research which has shown the value of this particular strategy of diversion. Back in the 60s, there was a psychological experiment called the marshmallow experiment. Some of you may have heard of it. These psychologists were testing for the quality of self-restraint and delayed gratification. And so they were working with young children, you know, four and five years old. They brought the children into a room one at a time, and on a table there was a marshmallow. And they told the child you can either have this one marshmallow now, but I'm going to leave the room, and if you can wait you know, a few minutes, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, then when I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Well, most of the kids went for the marshmallow. But there were some subset of people you know, who didn't, children, who actually could delay the gratification. And they tracked these kids. This was quite a large study. They tracked these kids over time. And they found that those who had the power to restrain that initial desire, from many measures, were more successful in life. They did better in school. They did better in relationships. They did better in handling stress. So there was something about that ability you know, to work with desire and restrain the immediate gratification that was of great benefit to them as they got older. Then years later, the psychologist, his name, 
uh, was Walter Michel, I think. He was a Stanford psychologist. He was interested in what the mechanism was that allowed some of the children to hold back from that immediate fulfillment of the desire. And he wanted to see what was going on in the mind. And so they did a whole battery of further tests, and this is what they came up with. And it all comes back to how we go through life, because we're not that different from those kids with the marshmallows, you know, in terms of how we react. So this was in a recent article in the New Yorker magazine. It said, at the time, psychologists assumed that children's ability to wait depended on how badly they wanted the marshmallow. But it soon became obvious that every child craved the extra treat. What then determined self-control? Michel's conclusion, based on hundreds of hours of observation, was that the crucial skill was the strategic allocation of attention. Instead of getting obsessed with the marshmallow, what's called the hot stimulus, the patient children distracted themselves by covering their eyes, pretending to play hide-and-seek underneath the desk, or singing songs from Sesame Street. Their desire wasn't defeated, it was merely forgotten. If you're thinking about the marshmallow and how delicious it is, then you're going to eat it, Michelle says. The key is to avoid thinking about it in the first place. In adults, this skill is often referred to as metacognition, M-E-T-A, or thinking about thinking, and it's what allows people to outsmart their shortcomings. So I think that's, that's a useful study. I, not that I'm suggesting you start singing songs from Sesame Street, <laughs> but when we're really in the grip of some strong hindrance, whether it's a desire or aversion, whatever it may be, and we've tried different strategies, sometimes taking our mind off of that object and really diverting it to something else allows us some freedom from that state. So that's the third strategy. The fourth method the Buddha talked about for dispelling unwholesome states that have already arisen is just the opposite. And that is looking directly at the states, investigating their source. You know, and its hold on the mind. So here we might be a little more engaged in seeing what thoughts or emotions are underneath the very strong hindrances. There are many examples of this. For example, if we're really caught in anger. Just, and we've tried different things, but we're still caught. Maybe we want to look, is there something underneath the anger which is fueling it? You know, maybe it's a feeling of fear, or maybe it's a feeling of hurt that's not being acknowledged. Or if we're caught by desire, and we've tried different things, and we're still you know, in the midst of it, we might look underneath the desire. Maybe there's a feeling of boredom. Maybe there's a feeling of loneliness, of frustration. So in this method, we're actually digging underneath a little bit 
to see what the source is. And the fifth method the Buddha talked of, when all else fails, is to suppress the unwholesome state with clenched teeth. <laughs> you know, we just push it down. So all of these methods, to me, remind us that meditation is an art. On this step of the path of right effort, it's not a question of simply following any one technique or thinking there's just one right way to work with these states. Rather, we understand that the mind is a vital and vibrant interplay of mental qualities, some wholesome, some unwholesome. So if we have a strong commitment to awakening, to walking on this path, to fulfilling this path factor of right effort, abandoning unwholesome states that have already arisen, so then we investigate, we experiment, we test different approaches, different ways of abandoning the unwholesome. Now the Buddha was the ultimate pragmatist. The teachings are not about dogma, they're not about things we need to believe. The teachings are all about what works, what works to free the mind. Okay, so the first of the great endeavors is to prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. The second great endeavor is to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. The third of the endeavors of right effort is to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. So we want to cultivate the various wholesome states, and there are many ways of categorizing them. But perhaps most succinctly, we can understand it as cultivating the seven factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment. So this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He says, the seven states are grouped together as enlightenment factors, both because they lead to enlightenment and because they constitute enlightenment. In the preliminary stages of the path, they prepare the way for the great realization. In the end, these very same qualities remain as its com complements. The experience of enlightenment, perfect and complete understanding, is just these seven components working in unison to break all shackles and bring final relief, release from sorrow. So what we're doing in our practice through all the various methods and techniques is to cultivate the arising of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. These are the seven factors of awakening. We can understand all of our practice and everything we're doing as the cultivation of these qualities of mind. So we work to have those unarisen, wholesome states we work to have them arise. And the fourth of the great endeavors 
is to strengthen and nurture the wholesome states which have already arisen. So this is sustaining what in the Abhidhamma the Buddha called the beautiful factors of mind. And I love that description. It doesn't even sound very Abhidhamma-like, which is pretty dry reading. But they call them, you know, in the Abhidhamma text, the beautiful states. And when we look at them in the mind, when we look at how they're actually experienced in our minds, we see that they are beautiful. You know, so often we tend to focus on our shortcomings and our mistakes. It's like somehow for us this is what's highlighted. And we overlook the many wholesome states that arise throughout the day. So it's almost our habit to pass over, not to pay attention to what's wholesome in us and just to shine the spotlight on what's unwholesome. I had a very vivid example of this tendency. It goes back years to my early time in India. This was in the late 60s. And practicing at the Burmese Vihara, and it was pretty informal in those days. It wasn't an organized retreat. It was just people went there and uh, practiced pretty individually. Uh, Munindra was sometimes there, sometimes not, as our teacher. And I remember one time, there weren't many of us, maybe seven or eight Westerners staying at the Vihara at that time. And one evening... Um, it was when Munindra wasn't there and we weren't in the midst of intensive practice. We were just sitting around outside the little huts and one of the women there had a guitar and we had, we had kind of a little block party. And she said she had a song to sing about us all. And it was so interesting because my mind immediately assumed that it would be kind of a good-natured roast. You know, that you just kind of see that particular quirk you know, in each of us, and she created a song about it. It turns out what she sang was actually a very loving toast that she had focused on what she saw as really the beautiful qualities in each person, and she created a song about that. And what was a little shocking is that it came as such a surprise to me (laughs) that that's what she would do. You know, and it just pointed to that tendency that I think is not uncommon of focusing on what's unwholesome. So in this, in this fourth great endeavor, we really want to recognize the wholesome moments, you know, pay attention to them when they arise, you know, and encouraging their growth. Because when we do this, when we have an appreciation for these wholesome states, it inspires faith, it inspires confidence in us, inspires greater right effort. And so we're just like on a glide path of awakening. It's helpful to consider right effort, the sixth step on the path in the context of our particular aspirations. What are we aiming for in our practice? 
Are we practicing for a little less stress in our lives? You know, just cooling out a bit. Are we practicing in order to come out perhaps of some psychological or emotional difficulty or suffering that we find ourselves in? Are we aiming for full and complete enlightenment? Each of these goals has its own reference point for what right effort means. But there's some good news here. And it was described in a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. And he talked about many studies which show that the mastery of any given discipline depends less on some innate talent and genius and more on the number of hours devoted to practice. And so even when we have the highest aspiration you know, for, for enlightenment, for full enlightenment and liberation, it's not that we have to be some spiritual genius in order to attain that, to realize that. We just have to put in the time. So this is what he said, this is from his book, Outliers. The idea that excellence at performing a complex task requires a critical minimum level of practice surfaces again and again in studies of expertise. In fact, researchers have settled on what they believe is the magic number for true expertise, 10,000 hours. The emerging picture from such studies is that 10,000 hours of repractice of practice is required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world-class expert in anything. In study after study of composers, basketball players, fiction writers, ice skaters, concert pianists, chess players, master criminals, and what have you, this number comes up again and again. It seems that it takes the brain this long to assimilate all that it needs to know to achieve true mastery. And a like study was done also with Tibetan masters, you know, who had put in that level of time in their practice. So they actually have done studies recently, you know, in, in the realm of spiritual practice. I find this encouraging. You know, because it's so easy to create a projection in our minds of, you know, maybe what enlightenment is and what kind of person you have to be in order to realize that. And to come back to the understanding that it's really a question, do we put in the time? Do we put in the hours? So we've talked at some length now about right effort and the four great endeavors preventing the unarisen, unwholesome states from arising, abandoning the unwholesome states which have already arisen, <coughs> arousing wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and maintaining and strengthening the wholesome states 
that have arisen. So this is what constitutes right effort, the sixth step on the path. The last two steps, right mindfulness and concentration, have already been discussed in quite a bit of detail when we talked of the seven factors of enlightenment. So tonight I just want to highlight just a few important aspects of each of these factors, mindfulness and concentration. Right mindfulness is the key, it's the essential key to practice. It is the first of the factors of enlightenment and it's what gives rise to all the rest. In a moment of mindfulness, it brings together, it attracts all the other factors of awakening. And it's the cultivation and application of this quality of mind which is the subject of the Satipatthana Sutta, in which we have seen the Buddha lays out in a very comprehensive way the many ways we practice and cultivate mindfulness. It's the quality of presence of mind, the quality of awareness that is often described as bare attention. Bhikkhu Bodhi describes this very clearly. He says, in the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in the way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. To practice mindfulness is thus a matter not so much of doing, but of undoing. And I think that's a very useful reminder. The simplicity of simply being present. It's not so much a question of doing, it's a question of undoing all the habit patterns of proliferation of judgment, of evaluation, of interpretation. Can we undo that and simply come back in the most simple way to be aware of whatever it is that's arising? And it's only six things which ever arise. It's either a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, or an object of mind. So it's like we're listening to a six-piece chamber orchestra sit back in a relaxed but not a casual way and simply be mindful moment after moment what's the arising object is it the sensation of the breath is it a thought is it a sound it's very simple but although it's very simple as we all know it's not very easy to do because our minds so often get lost in proliferation about the experience. You know, we overlay concepts and evaluations, our likes and dislikes, on the bare experience of what's happening. 
Sometimes this is through ideation. You know, we're actually thinking about what's happening through an overlay of concepts. But sometimes it's through a non-conceptual identification with experience. Now, sometimes it's not that we're thinking about it, it's just when we're not mindful, we're automatically identified with what's arising. And I call this black lab consciousness. Have you ever watched black labs, and really any dogs or animals, but <laughs> I love black labs because they're so goofy. <laughs> and they're lovable. <laughs> they just kind of are running around, you know, moment after moment, distracted by everything. So in the black lab, consciousness is there. You know, knowing is going on. There's knowing of sights and sounds and particularly smells. But as far as we can tell, there's no real mindfulness of what's arising. It's just knowing. And in that knowing, there's that immediate identification with what's known. You know, identification with the smell or the sight or the sound. There's no, as was said before, metacognition, no awareness of the mental process. The lab's just running from one sense impression to the next, literally being led around by the nose. And you can see it, you know, when you watch. So to understand the difference between this black lab consciousness and mindfulness, and mindful knowing, there's one very clear way of understanding and seeing for ourselves what the difference is. And that is pay careful attention to those moments when you awaken from being lost in a thought. That moment of transition is very revealing. We get a very clear, immediate, direct, intuitive experience of what it means to be awake, of what mindfulness means. You know, in one moment we're lost, we're carried away on this train of thought, and in the next moment we become aware that we're thinking. What just happened? That's the moment that reveals what mindfulness is. That's the quality which we practice. It's like we wake up from the dream of our lives. And this happens many times a day. As many times as we get lost in thought, that many times do we awaken from being lost. Don't overlook that moment. Pay attention to it. Really explore and see what is this quality of wakefulness? What is this quality of mindfulness? So through the power and continuity of mindfulness, we could say of knowing that we know, of really being aware of what's arising, we then develop the next and last step on this Noble Eightfold Path, and that is right concentration. When mindfulness is directed to stabilizing attention, on a single object, could be a breath, could be a sound, any single object, 
it leads to deeper states of calm, deeper states of tranquility, and it culminates in what we call the jhanas, or meditative absorptions. It's a very high degree of one-pointedness on a single object. So that's one way mindfulness can be directed. Another way mindfulness can be directed is to a precise noticing of changing objects. So we're not trying to stay on a single object, but we're very mindful moment after moment of whatever arises in our experience. And it's this application of mindfulness which develops a momentary concentration that can get very strong. And this is the concentration that reveals the three characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability, of dukkha, and of selflessness. The characteristic of both of these ways of practice, the characteristic of concentration in both of these ways is undistractedness. That's what concentration means. The mind that is undistracted from what has arisen in the moment. And it's this quality of undistractedness that makes possible the growth of wisdom. It's concentration which makes our minds pliable. And it pervades us, it pervades the mind and the body with a happiness that's much greater than the happiness of sense pleasures. You know, when our mind begins to settle into a concentrated state, it is very fulfilling. Without concentration, the Buddha said, our minds are like fish flapping about on dry land. And I think we've all had that experience. The Buddha was very clear about the importance of this last step on the path. He said, bhikkhus, and here, remember, often bhikkhus refers to monks or bhikkhunis, nuns, but when he uses the term in this way, bhikkhus means everyone who is practicing, everyone who is walking on the path. So the Buddha is really addressing us here. Bhikkhus develop concentration. A bhikkhu who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what is understood? The arising and passing of the aggregates. So it's concentration. It's this path factor of undistractedness, unwaveringness of mind that allows us to see the arising and passing of phenomena. When we see the arising and passing, we don't cling. When we don't cling, we don't suffer. And the Buddha went on. He's very strong on this point. He went on to say that dwelling without reverence and deference towards concentration leads to the decay and disappearance of the teachings. This is a very very direct statement about the importance of developing some degree of concentration, of developing this ability to be undistracted. And so that's why we practice. There are many ways of developing concentration. And traditionally, 
you know, 40 different objects are mentioned in some of the texts, including among others, you know, the breath of the Brahma Viharas. There are reflections on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which are concentration practices, 32 parts of the body, 10 colored casinas, you know, colored discs. There's reflections on peace. There are many ways of cultivating this undistractedness of mind. Often, we use the breath or the Brahma Viharas because they're suitable for everyone and they're, they're convenient. The breath is always with us. This is from a wonderful book that came out in the 60s, I think. It was one of the first books about practice called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by Nyanaponikatera. Um, he wrote, This concentration of mind achieved through mindfulness of breathing if cultivated and regularly practiced, is peaceful and sublime, an unalloyed and happy state of mind that makes unwholesome, unsalutary ideas immediately cease and vanish whenever they arise. And this is the Buddha talking to his son, Rahula. If Rahula, mindfulness of breathing has been cultivated and regularly practiced, even the last in-breaths and out-breaths will pass consciously, not unconsciously. So it has tremendous implications for our current well-being, for our dying with awareness. Although right concentration is the last step on this Eightfold Path, it's not the end of the path itself. We use this refined power of concentration then to explore the nature of the phenomena. When our minds are undistracted, when we've developed that ability to some extent, then we use it in the service of wisdom. We use it to investigate the mind, the body, the world. And all of this, every step on the path, And all the tools we use, all the methods we use, all have the final goal of uprooting the defilements. They have the final goal of coming to the end of suffering. The Buddha talked of this in many ways. But in one particular way, he talked about three kinds of samadhi, or concentration, as being the gateways to liberation. This is what he said, it's from the Samutta Nikaya. He said, and what bhikkhus is the path leading to the unconditioned? The emptiness concentration, the signless concentration, the undirected concentration. This is called the path leading to the unconditioned. Okay, so what is emptiness concentration? That is when our undistracted mind sees all arising experience as being empty of self. When we really understand and see the selfless nature of phenomena, that is a gateway to liberation. What is the signless concentration? This is sometimes called vipassana samadhi. In signless concentration, we abandon the sign of things being permanent 
through the seeing the changing nature of all phenomena. You know, when we're undistracted, we can't help but see that things are changing. Everything is arising and passing in each moment. The signless concentration is when we see that carefully enough and deeply enough, so we abandon the idea, the notion, that things are permanent. And the undirected concentration, as a gateway to liberation, arises when we contemplate the unsatisfying nature of phenomena. Now, why is experience ultimately unsatisfying? Because nothing lasts. So it's not that things are not sometimes pleasant. They are sometimes pleasant. But they arise and pass. And so in conditioned phenomena, there's no hope. There's no possibility of coming to completion, of coming to rest. It's always a process of becoming, you know, of wanting the next and the next and the next. So the undirected concentration is when we see this unsatisfying nature of phenomena and so no longer lean towards it, no longer are desiring it, no longer grasping at that which is impermanent and unreliable and selfless. So these are the gateways to liberation, these three kinds of concentration. You know, the emptiness, signless, and undirected. And all of these insights are brought to maturity at a certain point when the mind opens to the experience of Nibbana, the unconditioned, which uproots by stages all the defilements that keep us bound, even the latent defilements. And the Buddha described this experience in different ways. Now this, these are some of his descriptions of Nibbana. The perfection of wisdom, the highest happiness, unsurpassable freedom, a state of peace, sublime and auspicious, wonderful and marvelous, an island, a shelter, and a refuge. So in this way, it's described in very positive terms. But at the same time, as a caution against reifying some notion of Nibbana, you know, somehow making it solid, making it into a thing, the Buddha also describes it as that which is unborn. It's just, just for a moment. Let's see if you can wrap your mind around, so to speak, or unwrap it. <laughs> unborn, what would that mean? Now, what is that reality which is non-occurrence, unborn, unmade, unbecome, unconditioned? So this is the great fruition of our practice, accomplishing what was voiced by so many awakened beings in a phrase which just I resonate with so completely because it just captures within it that sense of rest, of ease, of putting down the burn burden. The phrase that many of the 
awakened beings would utter in the moment of their enlightenment is done is what had to be done. And I just think, what a moment that will be. You know, when we will be able to say, done is what had to be done. So the Buddha concludes the Satipatthana Sutta with a prediction that has important implications for how we understand practice. So these are the Buddha's closing words on the sutta. If anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, six years, five years, four years, three, two, one year, seven months, six months, five, four, three, two, one month, half a month, seven days, one of two fruits could be expected. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of Nibbāna, namely the four satipatthanas. So one very important implication of this direct statement is that awakening is really possible. It's something that we can all achieve because it is a potential of the mind. It's not something outside of the mind. It's a potential within us. And the Buddha is saying, if we practice in the right way, this is something that we can realize for ourselves. You know, and even in the first few moments of genuine mindfulness, I think we've all had the experience of, if you can remember, it's really a turning point in our lives. You know, when we realize, perhaps for the first time, that the mind can be trained. Most people don't know this about their minds. You know, unless we've turned in and looked and become mindful, even if it's just for a few moments, then this realization dawns. We understand. Yes, the mind can be trained. It can be understood. It can be liberated. So the second implication of the Buddha's prophetic statement, you know, if anybody develops these four satipatthanas for seven years down to seven days, another important implication for us is that there is a variable time frame for accomplishing this. So we might think of the seven-year statement as the 10,000 hours needed for mastery. But also, given the Buddha's understanding of many lives and the development of different paramis for different people over lifetimes, perhaps we are just starting on the 10,000 hours. And perhaps we've already done 9,000. 9,999. <laughs> we don't know. The time frame is variable. 
you know, for all the factors of awakening to come into balance. So each one of us has different backgrounds, different conditioning. Bhikkhu Bodhi points out something very helpful in this regard. And I don't think I have it. (laughs) I'll paraphrase it. He said that only two things are needed in order to bring this path to completion, to begin and to continue. And that if we do just these two things, the flowering of complete enlightenment, complete awakening is unavoidable that this is the nature of the Dhamma. It's the Dhamma unfolding. We begin and we continue. Here's the actual quote, It's it's in my notes. Liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. So the great gift of this sutta, of this discourse of the Buddha, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, the great gift of this discourse is that the Buddha shows us the way. So we start and we continue, and the outcome is inevitable. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insighthour.